What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Dr. Joey Munoz Show. I hope you're all having an absolutely fantastic day. Today's episode is a wonderful conversation that I had with a newer friend of mine, Luke Hanna. I feel like I've been saying this almost every week with interviews in terms of having newer friends, but it's because there's so many absolutely amazing and wonderful individuals on social media who are putting out really high quality content when it comes to nutrition, fitness, health, etc. And Luke is certainly one of them. He's doing his, he's actually about to finish up his master's degree and he's doing some really cool research investigating the um, cognitive mechanisms that regulate hunger and satiety and food choices in general in individuals with obesity. In this episode, we discussed some really, I guess, quote unquote, controversial topics like the question of is obesity a choice or not? And then we really took a deep dive in terms of like all the different mechanisms that contribute to why we eat, what we eat, how much we eat, etc. He broke it down into three categories, one being the homeostatic mechanisms, which are just like the physiological contributors, right? So hunger hormones, satiety, regulation, etc. Then it's the hedonic mechanisms, which are the mechanisms that regulate pleasure, right? Because let's face it, we don't always eat because we're hungry. Sometimes we eat just because we want to, because that's going to taste good, right? So he, we talked about those um, hedonic mechanisms, which are related to like dopamine regulation, for example. And then we also talked about his area of expertise, which are the cognitive mechanisms, right? Because you could have the desire to eat something, but then have the thought of I'm not going to eat it, which would be the cognitive restraint over the behavior, right? So his research really goes deep into what are these different cognitive mechanisms? What are the different areas of the brain that regulate our behaviors when it comes to choosing what foods we eat, how much of them we eat, etc. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Before we get into it, if you're enjoying the podcast so far, please take a second to leave a five-star rating in whatever podcasting app you're using, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts. I'd also appreciate if you guys left a review, letting me know what you like to see more of, what you enjoy, what you don't like, whether my voice is annoying or not. And if you're listening to this on YouTube, please like this video and subscribe to my channel. Anyways, let's go ahead and go into the episode and I hope you guys enjoy. Luke, how are you, my friend? Thank you for taking time to be here today. I'm good, how are you? Doing great, man. I found your profile through our mutual friend, Dr. Ids. Um, it's funny, he recommended that I follow you probably like a year and a half ago, and I've been incredibly impressed with your content. You are somebody who is very concise and um, I would say, I guess, very evidence-based, right? Because I've, the reason why I use the word very is because there's a, a wide range of people who consider themselves evidence-based, right? But all jokes aside, man, I really appreciate your content. I think you're um, putting out absolutely fantastic information, health-related information when it comes to nutrition and exercise. Um, and I'm really excited to speak to you today. Thanks. Excited to speak to you too. Awesome, man. Well, I'm... I'm um, very interested in learning more about the research that you've been working on uh, over the past, how long now? Three, two, three years, correct? Three years, yeah. Yeah, and you're really studying or getting uh, in the weeds, as we say, um, looking at the relationship between hunger and satiety regulation, different mechanisms there when it comes uh, specifically to obese individuals, correct? Yes, yeah. So my final project is focused on, uh, yeah, the cognitive aspects of appetite control in those living with obesity. That's exciting, man. I'm excited to get into it. I want to start with somewhat of a quote unquote controversial question, which is, is obesity a choice? Yeah. So look, on one hand, we are the product of hundreds of thousands of choices that we make over time. However, not all the choices that we make are conscious. Many are subconscious and all of them will be influenced by our environment, our psychology, our physiology and genetics, whether we like it or not. That's just fact. I don't think anyone actively chooses to be obese, but I also don't think that people have zero control or that there's nothing someone can do. So I can see that there's merit in both sides of the argument. However, I think that obesity is complex and nuanced and therefore requires nuanced conversation. The only wrong answer here is a hard no or a hard yes. Yeah, it's interesting, man, because we are influenced by not only our current external environment, but by the environment that we grew up in as well, right? And I haven't gone deep into this research at all, but um, 
there's definitely a ton of evidence that our experiences as children, which many of us, I'd say most of us don't necessarily have control over, influence our decisions and our behaviors as adults, right? Mm -hmm. And that includes behaviors around food, right? How we eat, why we eat, how much we eat, what foods we select. Have you looked into that at all? Like the environmental impacts, um, the environmental effects on food choices, obesity, especially as we age? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I think um, if anyone, again, this is kind of, we all know that, you know, weight management basically boils down to energy balance, calories in versus calories yeah. out, of course, on the most simple level. Um, but if anyone wants to kind of get an understanding of how many things influence both energy in and energy out, I'd encourage them to go Google the obesity foresight map. Mm -hmm. um, and it just gives a really nice demonstration. And the funny thing about it is that I've tried to use the image in content before, but there's so much in there. I literally is basically unviewable. So if you go find like a link where you can download the P PDF, um, it'll really kind of highlight how complicated these things and how many different factors there are. So from environment, as you say, um, you're growing up. Um, socioeconomic factors, psychology, right. physiology, genetics, and all these kind of things. And they all play a role in our, in the decisions we make, which kind of ties back to my point earlier. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm happy you brought that up because most people do think it, I mean, it does boil down to energy balance, right? But mm -hmm. people don't often think about the myriad of variables that influence both side of that, both sides of that equation, right? Which can make it substantially easier or substantially more difficult for certain individuals to either gain or lose weight, depending on the context, right? And then if we circle back to that question of, is obesity a choice? Um, I think that's the wrong question to ask, mm -hmm. right? Because do people inherently have a choice? Sure. But I think the question is, is how difficult is that choice for some people versus others, right? For because- sure. You've worked with dozens, if not hundreds of clients at this point, as have I. And just as practitioners, like putting aside research, it's evidently clear that some people have a substantially easier time regulating their health and fitness than other people. And I wouldn't even say that effort is the variable discerning the two there, because I've worked with individuals who struggle tremendously, despite putting in a lot of effort right? Mm -hmm. We can argue that maybe the effort is being allocated towards some things that don't matter that much. So maybe that's wasted effort. Um, but even then, you would think that people who put forth a lot of effort are going to have results. And that isn't necessarily the case, right? And so I think I, I would love to take a little bit of a deeper dive into some of these variables, mm -hmm. specifically with your expertise when it comes to hunger and satiety regulation. Um, one of the things that I preach to all of my clients, because most of the people that I work with just want to lose weight, want to look a little bit better, want to be a little bit healthier. Um, and they're tired of like hyper-focusing on every single little thing that they eat, what they shouldn't eat. And my philosophy is when it comes to nutrition, let's really focus on things that you should be adding to your diet to help regulate hunger and satiety, right? And that helps a ton of people. Some individuals still struggle, right? And maybe we can start talking about what are the different um, mechanisms or variables that influence hunger and satiety regulation? And how do those mechanisms perhaps become slightly dysregulated in the individuals who are obese? Sure. Yeah. So you, you, I'll give you kind of a, a brief overview. So there are three main systems or pathways for appetite. So we have the homeostatic pathway, which most people are probably familiar with. And that's um, the kind of things that, as you mentioned, focusing on the right types of foods, if you're increasing protein, um, volume eating, those kind of things, that's the type of thing that's going to be associated with that pathway. So if people remember their, you know, their biology lessons in school, homeostasis basically just refers to a biological system that's trying to maintain its internal stability through self-regulating processes. So an example of this could be um, your body temperature. So if you get too hot, you start to sweat, if you get too cold, you start to shiver. That's a very basic example. And the example of uh, weight management and hunger. Um, of course, you know, our body wants to maintain its current state, its body, our current body weight as a survival evolutionary mechanism. Of course, our environment is very different now where we don't have a problem uh, <laughs> with uh, food availability, etc. So, but you know, our environment has changed much faster than our body can adapt. Yeah. And so we still have these systems in place. And, um, you know, it's basically a physical need to eat. So if you if you don't eat or you start to lose weight, these systems, these self-regulating processes 
for example, increasing hunger hormones such as ghrelin mm-hmm. or um, alterations in leptin. So when leptin is released, it decreases hunger and increases energy expenditure. Um, these things will either decrease or increase to then influence behavior to cause us to seek out food and uh, will result in behavior change. Um, and these systems can become dysregulated, um, especially in those living with obesity as well. So you could give two people, we could eat the exact same meal, but we're probably not going to be satisfied or satiated for the same amount of time. So you may have some people who are genetically predisposed, for example, um, or they, yeah, they have just been in an obese state for long enough that these have become dysregulated. So, you know, you might feel hungry again two, two, three hours later, whereas I might feel hungry again an hour later. So the, some people are fighting their biology much more than others. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, tying back into, you know, is this a choice? Uh, these choices and the amount of willpower you have to put in are not equal. Um, and that's just the kind of example with um, the homeostatic pathway. So we also have the hedonic pathway, which is essentially eating just for pleasure. So where homeostatic is a physical need, this is where we just eat because we want to, because something tastes good. And we've all had it where, for example, you've had a large meal, you're stuffed, and then someone brings out ice cream or something like that. That could be considered hedonic eating. So you're eating just for pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's that's largely driven by... Um, the reward pathway is known as the reward pathways, um, dopamine, dopamine um, and things like that. And it's largely driven by us, our senses, so sight, smell, taste, etc. So again, you might have individuals who are more responsive. So you might have two people who walk past a bakery and smell the food. One person might barely notice it. The other person might feel a sudden drive to go get something and eat it. Then you have the third pathway, which has been the focus of my final project, which is the it's kind of like lesser known um, and just as complicated. Uh, so the cognitive systems. So this is really to do with decision making. And the main kind of aspects are attention, memory uh, and inhibitory control. Um, I'm missing one there. I've made notes to make sure I don't miss anything uh, and, and learning as well. So. Um, yeah, so th- that's basically exec- executive function, as some people refer to it. And so this is basically how our thought process- processes work. So you might have the homeostatic and hed- hedonic pathways telling you to eat something, but then you have the cognitive systems basically, you know, it's your reasoning essentially. So sh- should I eat this? Does this align with my goals? Is it conducive to my goals and what I want to achieve? Um, now, obesity is associated and is thought of as a um, an inflammatory state. So those who have excess le- levels of body fat, they are typically in a state of chronic low-grade inflammation. Now, acute inflammation is a normal response. For example, if you have a cut, there might be swelling, blood will go through the area, that's normal. Uh, the state of chronic low-grade inflammation is where you really start to get metabolic disturbances, and it's one of the reasons why obesity is associated with cardiovascular disease and insulin resistance and things like this. Now that inflammation doesn't just apply to the things that we would typically think of, but it also applies to neuroinflammation and impacts our brain. So over time we see structural changes um, and we see functional changes in the brain as well. And these can impact how someone's cognitive processes work, whether that's um, inhibitory control. So, and, and just to clarify, you know, in, in, if you think about inhibitions, people typically think of it in the terms of like alcohol. So if you drink alcohol, your inhibitions are lowered and you are more likely to make poorer choices, whether that's with the food yeah. or anything else. So when you have um, areas of the brain responsible for inhibition and inhibitory control not being activated the way that they should, then that's potentially going to lead to people making poorer food choices. Um, and I think that's like a rough, a rough, uh, overview of the kind yeah. of like systems that's incredibly interesting man because you can start to think about i mean i'm sure it's already a ton of work to learn about each of these systems independently and then it's another layer layer above that to start to to discuss and learn how these systems influence each other right because there's yeah, no sorry, doubt that's that something i do. didn't mention they we talk about them as if they're independent but they're absolutely yeah. not. they're all working yeah. at the same time <laughs> 
Yeah, because you're talking about hedonic pathways, dopamine, that's technically going on in your brain, influencing the cognitive. Well, I guess when you were talking about the cognitive pathways, it's more associated with decision-making, executive function, correct? Mm. You know, while while you were talking, and I, I want to discuss each of these and how they're related, but going back to the um, homeostatic pathways, because you mentioned something that's really interesting that you hear people talk about often, and it's that losing weight is really hard because your body doesn't want to lose weight. Your body wants to maintain homeostasis. Your body wants to maintain where it is currently, which includes your body composition, your body weight, right? And my question is, based off your work or based off what you've read, can that homeostatic um, equilibrium shift over time? Yeah, I think... Um... So yeah, I'm just trying to think. So I know with you know some of the things we're talking about, and this 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 dysregulation. Uh, when you change your diet, start focusing on the kind of more uh, nutrient dense, health, healthy foods, and you bring your body fat level levels closer to what is considered healthy, you can kind of somewhat reverse some of the impacts of this dys dysregulation. But in terms of your question, so if you're getting these kind of, um, I think those who have been overweight and then have lost weight i think it's always going to be harder i think they're always going to have to be more conscious than someone who has never lost weight and they if, even if they're the same weight now one person is always gonna to have to be more conscious and that's one of the reasons why regain is so um uh, such a problem with those losing weight and um, whether these things can be like shifted so it's like you know it, they never were heavier i i don't think um there's a clear cut answer to that yet. I don't think we know. And um, I think generally most people, as I say, they may, they may start to feel better over time. Um, but it's kind of arguments, right? It's like kind of like the whole set point theory thing. Um, yes. yeah. Whether the, these things, I don't, I don't think that, uh, yeah, generally people will ever be the same. Um, but it may get better over time. No, that's really interesting, man. And I'll share my personal experience because I was very overweight as a child and even like younger teenager. Um, and it's hard to necessarily understand the alternate viewpoint because you've ne never necessarily experienced it either, right? Mm -hmm. And so I do believe that to an extent that your behaviors, food choices, and overall lifestyle when it comes to stress management, sleep, exercise, etc., can at least slightly influence where that... Um, where that what's the term you used um, that point. set point is right because i'll explain here what i mean so i picked up resistance training about 12 years now where i've been mm -hmm. consistently lifting three four five times a week regularly right and as i was just saying when i was much younger probably 12 or 13 years old i was very overweight almost obese Okay. And it was just because food choices at home weren't necessarily the best. I come from a Hispanic background. The whole culture is like you, you eat, right? You have to finish your food. You're not healthy if you're not eating enough. And so I ate a ton as a child and I was overweight and I struggled with my weight. Um, I would say struggled with my weight and self-image all through high school and a good part of college as well. And what I've noticed is that the longer I've been focusing on resistance training, for example, um, and building muscle and living a healthy lifestyle, it feels substantially easier to maintain a leaner, healthier physique. Now, you also mentioned something that's a great point that I was reflecting on when you were mentioning that I haven't even thought about before, is that people who have lost weight and are maintaining weight loss perhaps have to be more conscious about their choices. And I do. I do have to be conscious about my choice. Like, typically, my weight fluctuates a decent amount throughout the year, right? My weight is not stable. And so I'll go through periods of time throughout the year where I purposefully lose 10, 15 pounds. Um, and then I slowly regain it throughout the year when I stop being as diligent. But for me, it doesn't feel stressful or difficult because I know that once a year for about two or three months, I'm just going to be a little bit more strict with my diet, lose some weight, and then have a little bit more leniency and my weight will slowly creep up again. But it is something that I have to consciously decide on doing whereas perhaps somebody else who hasn't ever struggled with their weight doesn't have to do that at all right for sure i mean i like for example if you take me i'm not saying that i don't uh you know haven't had 
body image issues or anything like that, but I've never been really overweight and, yeah. you know, I'm pretty relaxed with my diet. And it's, this is not to say that I haven't spent a, spent a lot of time building certain habits up, but now those habits are there for me, my, my weight. And of course I can gain and lose a little bit, but my body weight is pretty, my body's pretty good at maintaining my homeostasis <laughs> and where I am. So I don't have to be too conscious. Um, and so yeah, I think it's kind of a good example of like the difference. And um, yeah, it's very different for different people. Yeah. And just, and what I mean by that, that homeostatic point changing is, I think when you do purposefully start to focus on living a healthier lifestyle and some of these habitual things that we know are very beneficial, um, when you start to focus on those things and they do become habitual, then it does become easier and feels easier, both physically and cognitively, to maintain a lower, healthier body weight. And I'll give you an example again. When I was younger, if I ever went out to a restaurant with family, for example, I had a very hard time like controlling my eating. Um, I would eat all of my plate and whatever anybody else left, I would eat all of that as well. And usually here in the States, if you go to any restaurant, they bring you breadsticks at the beginning. And I would eat all of the bread with all of the butter. And I did not know how to not do that. Mm. Like if I went to a restaurant, that is just what I would do, right? Mm. And I would always leave feeling uncomfortable uh, because I was super stuffed, right? And it hasn't even been something that I've focused on perhaps too much intentionally, but over the years, and maybe maybe this is an indirect effect of studying nutrition and, and doing this in a professional setting, but 10 years later, I don't feel that same degree of drive to eat everything, right? Like I can go to a restaurant, order my entree, not have an appetizer, not have a dessert and just eat that and feel perfectly fine. Um, and that isn't just when it comes to restaurant, but like in any social situation, I would feel the pressure to like overeat, not even pressure. Like it was just what felt natural. If there was food and I saw it, I just wanted it. And that goes partially to some of the stuff that you were talking about, like the hedonic mechanisms, as well as some of the, the, the cognitive mechanisms as well. Right. And I don't know the reason why, but today I don't have that same drive. Like I can see food there that I love and just be perfectly fine not having it, right? Have you looked into some of the like shifts in people's behaviors and mechanisms and, and what contributes to that? I mean, I think the, what has probably happened is that is, and what some people would expect is that these changes happen instantly. But I think I can probably safely say for you, it's it's not going to be, it wasn't like you were in one state and you've immediately gone to another one. No, probably no. Up and down and you've been slowly going in the right direction and then you've been retraining yourself. So as you say, those kind of like pathways, for example, like hedonic and um, reward, you basically taught your body to expect certain things. So then it becomes automatic. And so then you don't even really think about it. So again, tying back to the, you know, choice question, a lot yeah. of the choices you make are not even conscious. It's like yeah. almost like before you even think about it. Um, and if you've been doing that for years, I do, I do think it's, I mean, it's definitely possible. Like you're an example, um, kind of my clients are exa uh, good examples and, you know, hundreds of thousands of other people are examples that you can um, retrain yourself. It just takes time. And I don't think the shift is going to be immediate, which is what a lot of people expect. Yeah. And that's, that's what I was referring to with, do you think this set point can change over time by, by working on it? Right. Because yeah, if I let myself go altogether and have no restraints, I would gain a ton of weight. I've just become very comfortable choosing restraints. And it doesn't feel like I'm being very restrictive at all, right? It just feels like it's part of my norm. And so for me, the, the, the set point has shifted in the sense that it feels a lot easier to make the healthy choices that contribute to this body composition currently, right? Whereas my natural body composition previously, I had a lot more adiposity. And where I'm at currently, I don't feel hungry and I don't feel a strong drive to eat to get me back to that point. And and I guess there's a difference there between like acute and chronic set point, right? Because I think acutely, yes, if you are wherever you are at this moment, if you try to lose weight, you're going to feel some of those hunger signals. It's going to be difficult. Conversely, if you, for some reason, are purposely trying to lose weight uh, or gain weight, you're going to feel full if you're eating more food. You're going to perhaps feel lethargic, stuffed, uh, bloated, et cetera, right? Which are ex essentially mechanisms to get you to eat less. Right. But I do think that over time, if you focus on these things, and I would love to take 
this conversation next into discussing what are some of the things that people can start to do to move in the right direction. But I do think if you can somehow start to focus on those things and actually develop them, that that set point can change so that it feels easier overall to maintain the body composition that you want to long term. Yeah, I think it's um, it's interesting. And the set point is kind of more referring to the homeostatic and physiological side of it. But yeah, for sure, I think all of them can be um, improved over time. And even even like, as I say for myself, you know, although I haven't struggled hugely with my body fat levels, my lifestyle and things that contribute to my health or a healthy lifestyle have definitely gone up and down. And you, know, you, do, you start off doing one thing and you really have to focus on it. You do it for long enough, hopefully it becomes sub- subconscious and you don't really have to think about it too much, um, which is always the goal with clients, right? You've got to remind them it's like, it's going to be hard now, but it hopefully won't be hard forever. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great point. Um, and that is something that I try to talk to my clients about, right? So I'd say with most of my clients, I start the recommendations that we talk about are more on the homeostatic regulation, right? Like what are some of the immediate simple changes that we can make to your diet and lifestyle that'll make it a little bit easier for you to reduce your overall caloric intake, right? And simultaneously, we discuss some of the um, mindset related shifts of like not having an all or nothing mentality, not feeling bad if you go quote unquote off plan and eat some foods, because we know how much of an effect your mindset plays on your overall long-term success. Right. But I'd love to hear from you. If you if you work with a client, what are some of the first couple of things that you think somebody should be focusing on so that they can have long term um, change in health? Yeah, I mean, this is probably quite a common answer, but I think, you know, actually talking to people and understanding their whys, why they're doing certain things. Mm-hmm. So something um, just habit, because as you say, you were brought up doing it. Um, is it because you are genuinely getting hungry because you're starving yourself in the morning because someone's told you that fasting is the only way to lose weight, et cetera. So finding out why people are actually doing things can be really helpful and you don't need to work with a coach to be able to do that. So one of the questions that I always ask in my first consultation is, um, you know, if we started working together, we get three months down the line, what would have to happen for you to be ecstatic about your results? And don't tell me I want to lose 10 kilos because people always say like, my goal is to lose 10 kilos or whatever it is a number, but that's, it's kind of irrelevant. You need to think about why you want to lose it. How does that make you feel not just physically, but psychologically? Why is it important to you? Do you want to live longer for your kids? Do you just want to be, um, is it going to impact your confidence and your performance at work? Whatever it is, like most people have reasons it's not i just i just want to lose 10 kilos and that's it so that's like something really basic that you don't need to work with a coach to be able to work out and the old saying is you know i think it's uh ask yourself uh why five times so it's like you know i want to lose 10 kilos why um because i would fit into my clothes better why because that would improve my confidence why etc so until you get down to the real reasons and that can be quite important for um and then remind yourself of that, of that as well as you go. Whether you have to write that down or whatever it is, remind yourself every morning. Like understand your whys. Yeah, that's very powerful, right? Because again, reflecting here on experiences that I'm sure both you and I have had with previous clients, this is a conversation I've had a number of times. Like oftentimes, people set an arbitrary goal without necessarily having a strong reason why, right? And I don't think what I tell my clients is like. I don't necessarily think that having a shallow reason or a reason that isn't extremely deep, um, it isn't a bad thing, right? Just understand that if your rationale or, or desire to do something is fairly or yeah, is fairly shallow, it might just be harder to actually achieve it because it doesn't mean all that much to you, right? For example, like my wife and I were going on a vacation in a month. And a month ago, so two months before the vacation, I'm like, okay, I want to lose a little bit of weight. And for me, arbitrary number was about eight or nine pounds in the two month time period. And I'm down about four or five pounds the first month. In the past like two weeks, my weight's been pretty stable. Obviously, this goal is arbitrary and doesn't really mean much to me. So I don't really care that I haven't lost weight the past two weeks, right? But perhaps if it was a health related reason or something more powerful, right? I want to be here for my kids. I want to be able to play with my kids, my grandkids. That definitely um, is a strong motivator for people to create the behavior change that they need to do, that they need to to implement to actually achieve that goal. For sure. I mean, I absolutely agree. And to be honest, like most people will always be hesitant 
to say they just want to look better and yeah wrong with that as you say um and that's probably one of the most common common answers i do get when i ask that question so that's also fine but you can still tie that into you know it would improve my confidence or i feel like it would Correct. be it would, these reasons um but yeah there's absolutely nothing nothing wrong with that as well yeah and so discussing the why is certainly step one right and let's say you work with somebody who has been obese their whole life what are some of the next following steps right in terms of actionable steps that people can take towards improving their health losing weight etc i mean so no matter what you do of course as we've mentioned you have to manipulate energy balance in some way so What I typically do with my online coaching clients is I will get them to do a food diary. And, you know, it's it's mostly so when we have the first proper consultation, I can kind of see if the things they've been saying match up to what their diet is actually like and then the advice can be tailored to them. So, um, and this is kind of like why this is a tough question because it would be specific to the person. So if someone, for example, does do a food diary, you know, I, I can actually not give people any advice I can just say, just do this for a week, be honest, be accurate, don't change your diet. And most people after doing that will be like, oh, okay, I probably have some idea. People have some idea of the things they maybe not should be eating as much of and they should be eating more of. So I I feel like that's quite a useful exercise and it's normally where I start. And then based on that, I can then give them specific advice as well. So, um, and I I think um, it's probably again going to be a bit of a boring answer because I'm sure you have also said this a lot on the podcast as well, because it's what people need to do, but doing the basic things instead of chasing shiny objects. So, you know, increasing protein intake, increasing vegetables, addressing their sleep, trying to get some basic form of activity. And no matter what that is, um, ideally they would actually enjoy it, or at least it's the form of exercise that they hate and they hate the least, as I always say. Um, And those kind of things are, you know, super, they're so crucial. And again, being on social media, you see all these things that people are going on about uh, ice baths or, or special techniques to increase longevity or special supplements. And you're like, you know, we, we know like so much about how these other things impact our health. And if you're not doing those, you should not be looking at those things at all. So like it's pointless. Um, and again, going back to a quote that I probably said on podcasts that I've been on before, um, there was a coach many, many years ago when I first started, he said something like 10% of the population need 90% of my knowledge and 90% need 10%, meaning that the 90% need that surface level stuff. Yes. Where I look at their diet and I'm like, you know, you probably should eat something with nutrients in it. You know, why don't we start there? They don't need the fancy minutiae or like, you know, beyond that, that basic stuff. And when they actually... It's because it's not sexy, right? It's like boring and they, they don't want to be told that. And, you know, even it's like people harp on about like the government guidelines and all this sort of mm. stuff. It's, they're actually pretty good, you know, it's just no one follows yeah. them. <laughs> so yeah. it, that's the thing. You need to probably focus more on the behavior change and what you can do to actually get yourself to implement those basic things. That's the difference. Are you tired of spending countless hours grocery shopping, cooking and preparing your meals? I get it. Time is precious and that's where Icon Meals comes into play. I've partnered with Icon Meals to bring you delicious, macro-friendly and high-protein meals that will make it easier than ever for you to achieve your fitness goals. I understand that you may have hesitations over the cost of a meal prep service compared to cooking food at home. But let's face it, how often do you spend more money eating out because you didn't have time to prepare your food at home anyways? With Icon Meals, You not only save time, but you invest in your health. These meals are carefully crafted to be healthier and more in line with your fitness goals than most of the food that you eat out anyways. So why wait? Visit iconmeals.com and explore their wide array of mouth-watering meals. And as a special bonus for listening to this podcast, use code JOSEPH10 at checkout for a special discount off of your order. By the way, you can find all of the necessary links in the description of this podcast. Don't let time be a barrier to your success. Choose Icon Meals and fuel your journey towards a healthier, fitter you. Yeah, and talking about the government guidelines, I just wish there was a little bit more emphasis on protein, but aside from that, it's it's pretty good. You're right, the thing is people just don't follow them, right? I think you and I are on the same exact page when it comes to, to basic nutrition recommendations that people should follow, right? For me, it's, um, for somebody who's never ever tracked their calories, I do like them practicing that as a behavior, at least for a couple of months, because it's a fantastic learning tool. Um, I I think an aspect of learning how to eat intuitively long-term is 
taking some time to track your calories so you learn about how much energy is in food, how to make appropriate substitutions. Because people are like, I don't want to track calories. And I get that. You don't have to do it forever. It's the same as like taking a course um, in school and not wanting to take notes or study, right? It's a similar analogy there. Like you don't necessarily have to do it, but it's very helpful for you to learn the information you're trying to learn, right? So for me, I think tracking calories for people who are really, or people who really care about this stuff and really want to improve their health, I think it's one of the important steps to learn. Of course, you don't have to do it forever. I don't track my calories, but I did spend considerable time tracking my calories, right? And then aside from that, um, protein and fiber for me are huge. It's so funny because I used to just say protein, 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 because everybody that I worked with was just focused on body composition. And more and more, I've shifted towards really emphasizing fiber and um, almost from a health perspective, even being more important than, than protein, because we know the myriad of health benefits of fiber, right? And then other small habits I, I try to get people to implement is having a regular meal schedule. Um, you know, fasting is fine, but the evidence does show that if you eat breakfast, you have better energy expenditure, weight management, hunger and satiety regulation. So I'm really big on eating first thing in the morning. And those are some of the big, just like nutrition specific things, right? And then obviously exercising. Um, and I wanted to ask you about something that's really interesting that you mentioned in terms of choosing the form of exercise that you hate the least. There are people that hate exercise, any sort of movement, right? And this ties into some of the hedonic mechanisms. Do you think it's possible for people to actually enjoy it after a period of time, especially if they started by hating any sort of movement? Oh yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, I think most people don't enjoy things that they're not good at, or they feel that, that they're uncomfortable doing. And, you know, anyone who tries anything new, they're going to be uncomfortable. Of course, again, this is tying back to, you know, it's different for different people. If someone uh, is very overweight, for example, then that's not going to be the same as someone who has not experienced that, but they're just new to the gym. They might be a bit anxious, but it's not going to be the same. And that's fine to acknowledge. Um, and it's just baby steps, you know, I think, um, for sure. I've had, I've had plenty of clients. I've had plenty of clients who not really enjoyed it to begin with. And then eventually they've, they've ended up really enjoying trading and they're not needing me anymore, which is ultimately the goal, isn't it? So um, yeah, hundred percent, you can definitely uh, learn to enjoy it. And that, that doesn't mean that's going to happen for everybody, but yeah, I, I think yeah. Uh, once you start to get past that uncomfortable phase to begin with um, and, and you focus on the right things as well. So if you're not exercising, you know, don't just focus on, how the exercises, for example, maybe helping you lose weight, focus yes. on how you're improving in the gym and you make those small improvements and then you get satisfaction and then that help, helps kind of like snowball the whole, the whole uh, you know, positive feelings around it. Yeah, you know, I love how we're talking a lot about the actionable things that we can do that influences somebody physiolo somebody's physiology, but intermittently you're injecting like what your mindset should be around these things, right? And it's so important to do both because if you just focus on the things you need to do and don't think of them in the appropriate fashion, they're not going to be sustainable long-term, at least not for most people, right? So yes, thinking of exercise not as a means to an end to lose weight, but instead something that you do that's part of your lifestyle because it's gonna make you healthier long-term, right? And it, it does come down partially to identity shift and identifying as the particular type of person that you want to be, right? And then developing the, the, the behaviors that that type of person would essentially do on a regular basis, right? Um, dude, I'm thinking of like a million things here and we can go in a million different directions. Um, it's super interesting. You know, I asked the thing about exercise becoming enjoyable because I've, I've made videos before um, talking about how, or giving recommendations if somebody's just getting started and they needed to focus on like just nutrition or just exercise. Like, even though my degree is in nutrition, exercise is invaluable, get some movement in. And I've talked about just pick the type of movement that feels enjoyable, whether it's a walk or whether it's playing tennis, whatever, right? doesn't matter. Start with something and then build upon it over time. And inherently, I always get comments of people saying, well, there are people that just don't enjoy anything. And it's like, it's so difficult to talk to those people, right? Because first and foremost, most people don't enjoy alcohol the first time they try it, right? And then eventually, you know, for what I would consider the wrong reasons, but you get to a point where you do enjoy it, right? So there's no doubt that you can start to enjoy things that you inherently don't enjoy at the beginning. I think perhaps one of the 
things that individuals struggle with is that they've had very bad prior experiences with exercise, whether it's they hired a personal trainer who didn't know what they were doing, or they went from not exercising to exercising seven days per week, twice a week for two hours. It's the, the modality that they chose previously was not the best way to do it, right? And I'm sure you also recommend for a gradual exposure and slowly over time, increasing the duration, intensity, modality, et cetera, right? For sure. I think something that's super useful to bear in mind is that the benefits of going, for example, from zero to one hour per week are significant. Yes. Benefit from two to three, still great. You know, you don't, once you start getting to like, I can't remember the specific numbers, but of course, you know, you're going to get diminishing, diminishing returns. Probably doing four five hours a week or four or five sessions a week, adding another one is probably not going to do that much, except maybe put some people off. So what you have to think about is even if you do a little bit, um, and I'm sure I've actually posted about research in the past, which I believe was showing that you have significant health benefits with just one hour per week. And I'm actually not even sure that has to be in one go. So you could do two 30 minute sessions yeah. a week and the health benefits you get from that, from going zero to that are huge. Um, so you don't have to go from zero to a hundred. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's, and I think that applies to anything that you're trying to do with your health. Right. Yeah. Um, I was just reading the book. You can't screw this up by Adam, Adam Bornstein. Um, oh, what, sorry. You can't screw this up by Adam oh. Bornstein. Okay. And it's essentially his book is on what diet culture gets wrong and essentially how you should be looking at health and fitness. And one of the things that he outlines in the book, which is something that we all talk about frequently, is that stress is necessary for change, right? Mm -hmm. But the degree of stress is very important because mm -hmm. if you push too much outside of your comfort zone, it's simply not enjoyable at all, right? And at the end of the day, what drives us to do anything is enjoyment in one way or another, right? So if you simply stress yourself a little bit, it's still stressful, it's still uncomfortable, but the benefits that you're getting from that stress are enjoyable. So it motivates you to continue, right? Whereas most people, let's say their comfort zone is this, and for people listening, I'm just like making a small circle with my hands. They try to step completely outside of their comfort zone from one day to the next. They try to completely eliminate everything that they do that they deem unhealthy, and then try to do everything that they deem healthy the next day. And that's just... I mean, you may be able to keep that up for a week or two, but it's just so stressful. It's not enjoyable. And so you just revert back to your previous behaviors. When in reality, this is a much slower approach, but sustainable approach is to simply push past your comfort zone a little bit, right? If you identify uh, five or 10 behaviors that you'd like to change or that you would like to remove from things that you currently do, start by just removing or changing one or two. And then maybe start by just adding one or two very, very small things. Once those become habitual, once they feel comfortable, then you can either add new things or change the, uh, or, or gradually expose yourself to more of the same thing, right? So like, if you don't walk at all, maybe just start by going on a 15 minute walk. That feels comfortable, go for 20. Then you can jog slash walk. Then you can jog. Eventually you're running, right? Um, I'd love to hear from you how that ties into some of the, cognitive mechanisms that influence people's behaviors, food choices, et cetera, because obviously that ties in. Mm. I mean, yeah, I think um, just, I was just thinking as you were talking, I think, uh, you know, for a little bit of stress and anxiety is not always the worst thing, as you yeah. said, there are levels to it. <laughs> um, but, you know, for me, as, as my own example, like going back to uni after 10 years and doing the master's, like that was incredibly stressful <laughs> and it has yeah. been at certain points trying to work at the same time and do that too. Um, but, you know, I kind of thought when I was signing up to it, I was like, you know, I asked my clients to push themselves outside their comfort zones all the time. And, you know, some stress is normally indicative that you're doing something different or pushing yourself. So it's not always bad. Correct. If and always different people have different levels of stress that they can react to. Right. Or manage, I should say. Do um, they? Or they do? They do. They in, in the sense that like for somebody, a certain thing may just be too much. Whereas for somebody else, that may be manageable. Right. Like trying to develop three new habits 
and those habits being whatever xyz that might be too much for a certain person somebody might need to start with just one or two whereas somebody else may be able to take on more change at once and the reason behind that i don't necessarily know but i'm sure you have experienced it with clients right where some clients seem like they're just ready to make a shift you give them recommendations they're able to implement them and then with other people you have to be a little bit slower more calculated more gradual yeah i mean um, i i think um, i probably more often than not have when people start they're like raring to go i actually have to rein people in a lot <laughs> like, let's let's try this first before we try doing 10 things at once and then we'll you know nail that first then we'll we'll progress but um yeah for sure yeah awesome man well i want to bring this back and talk about one last thing and it's related to the research that you're doing right because you're really looking at the cognitive mechanisms that regulate hunger and satiety specifically in individuals with obesity right mm -hmm. So what are some of the differences that we see there in terms of cognitive processes when it comes to food choices, hunger and satiety regulation in these individuals? Yeah. So I think, as I, I mentioned, you know, you have these structural and functional changes as a result, well, as one of the mechanisms is uh, the kind of inflammation. Um, and so some people who are living with obesity, for example, find it harder to delay gratification they might have more attention on certain things where it should be on other things. Um, and, you know, it's really interesting because there's actually a lot of kind of research looking into the interventions as well to how to address this kind of thing. So you have the more traditional methods such as CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, which is essentially talking therapy. Um, and there's loads of evidence for that being helpful for people with eating disorders and all sorts of different conditions as well. And for the people living with obesity. Um, there's also something called cognitive reappraisals, which is something that actually, out of all the things I'm about to talk about, could be probably the most practical or something that people could actually take away and try to implement themselves. So cognitive reappraisal training is essentially helping people think about and rephrase, uh, yeah, how they, uh, re rephrase how they think about things and looking at how these foods are going to benefit you or the long-term cost of eating certain foods. So is this meal going to be helping me step in the right direction or is it something that's, you know, virtually nutritionally void calorie dense um, or is there something else that I can have that? And again, you don't want to just think about the, the negatives, but you can also think about the positives. So is this food going to help keep me full? What is this going to do for me? And just to clarify here that no single food is going to impact your health unless you're consuming something super poisonous, <laughs> you know, it's your overall dietary pattern that matters. But of course, these many choices that you make will contribute to your overall dietary pattern. So that's something that's, that has been shown to be quite effective. And of course, you know, people are not going to be doing the specific training, but being conscious of the decisions you're making. And so when you're, you are choosing uh, food, you know, how is this going to impact my health long term, whether that's negative or positive? It's interesting that you bring that up because an aspect of that is just being mindful of your decisions, right? Really thinking about what, what you're doing, why you're doing, how does it contribute to the overall goal, right? Uh, question for you, how does that type of therapy and thinking differ from just thinking that a food is good or bad? Um, I think it's fine to you know acknowledge that something may not be conducive to your long-term long goals without having this black or white or what we call a dichotomous mindset. So right. we know dichotomous or mindset or black and white thinking is associated with, um, you know, worse outcomes essentially. Yes. Um, and I think uh, if you're changing your mindset and you're thinking a bit more practically about it, it can actually sometimes remove these foods from the pedestal as well. So if you kind of view this thing as this in a, in a certain way and, you know, you view it as this like big bad food or whatever, um, I don't know if that's conducive to long-term adherence to a diet. And if people then try to avoid it, for example, forever, that normally doesn't work out. For some people, total elimination can work, but for most people, it probably doesn't. Um, so, yeah, I think it's fine to acknowledge that certain foods are going to be better or worse. But again, tying back into no single food, like if you eat one salad, that's not going to make you healthy. If you eat right. one fat burger covered in bacon and cheese, that's not going to make you unhealthy. And uh yeah, I, th I think it's um, perfectly reasonable to focus more on what well, you should focus more on some foods than others, but you don't want to be like demonizing them at the same time. Yeah, I think I think the negative impacts of demonizing certain foods isn't even the fact that like you think it's a bad food. It's perhaps 
the negative psychological repercussions that happen uh, afterwards when you mm -hmm. have that food, which is very different than the thinking process that goes behind deciding whether a food contributes to what you're trying to achieve or not, right? Because you can decide that this food that I'm going to eat, whether it's ice cream or whatever it may be, doesn't necessarily contribute to my goal of losing X amount of pounds or building X muscle. It's not nutritionally dense. It's not really high in protein or fiber. However, I want to enjoy it right now. And there's no negative psychological repercussion after you eat it, which is very different, right? Because at the end of the day, when you're saying like, this food doesn't contribute to my goals, this food does, in a, in a sense, you're saying, no, this food isn't good right now. Yes, this food is good. But it's not the fact that you're saying yes or no, this is a good or a bad food. It's it's technically the way that that type of thinking affects you afterwards, correct? Yeah, and it's just the, the context of your... Yeah, yeah, the context does really matter, man, because that's one thing I'm sure you do too, really try to talk to my clients about, right? And especially when they're like, oh, I ate this bad food. And I was like, wait, 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 let's let's wait a minute. Why is it bad, right? Oh, because it's calorie dense or whatnot. Yeah, but you're still within your caloric limits and you enjoyed yourself. You went out to dinner with your wife or you went out to uh, your kid's birthday party or th the best is like when it's around vacation, right? One of the things I really try to emphasize to my clients is that like you can have a long-term goal and in between that, there are periods of time where you're not actually focusing on that particular goal, right? Like if you go on vacation for three days, there's nothing wrong with just enjoying yourself, <laughs> letting loose, having more food. It's okay if you gain a little bit of weight. Um, and although that doesn't contribute to your long-term weight loss, it does contribute to uh, like mental sanity and health, right? And just being okay with fluctuating and having different seasons. What are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, that's why I was just thinking as you're saying it, you know, actually you can also rephrase it to think, actually this food does help me with my long-term goals. Yes. We adhere long-term. Yes. So um, that's also important to bear in mind as well. Yeah, it's it's funny, man. When I started working with people, I thought, um, you know, I know a lot about nutrition. I'm going to be able to help a ton of people because I have really good advice. And then you start to learn about how much more actually goes into this stuff. And like the information, the actual information can be delivered in five minutes, <laughs> right? It's the implementation of the information that takes a really long time for people. And like you mentioned, like, just talking about these things and having conversations about them is really helpful and really powerful, which is why working with a coach can be really beneficial for some people, right? Because you have somebody to openly talk about the things that you're struggling with when it comes to nutrition, exercise, lifestyle, et cetera. Somebody who's hopefully an expert in the field <laughs> who can give you really practical advice, right? Um, yeah, man, I, I, yeah, it's I'm just thinking right now in, in terms of like experiences I've had with clients. And it's so cool when you start with a client who maybe even like throughout the duration of your coaching, don't lose a ton of weight or anything like that. But the way they think about stuff drastically changes, right? Have you had those experiences? Yeah, absolutely. I think those that can actually also be one of the most um, satisfying aspects, I think. It's yes. not, just, not just like the weight loss, but if people's, you know, whole mindset shifts and then they have less guilt and they actually like enjoy their lives. Like you, you can really impact people's uh, psychological well-being, not just their physical. Yeah. And it is really rewarding. I, I think that's for me, one of the most rewarding things I, I see with clients because yeah, losing weight is cool. Like changing the way your body looks is cool. But if you don't change the way you think, then like it doesn't really mean much because you're not going to be substantially happier or anything like that. Right. And hearing somebody say, and this is something that I've heard, multiple clients of mine say, it's like, oh, I went on a trip this weekend and I didn't stress about what I ate because you taught me that it's not that big of a deal, <laughs> right? And it sounds so simple, but it, it is really cool to see that happen in, in real time. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Yeah, and I think that's one of the really powerful things about like podcasting too, right? Because although people listening aren't having a direct conversation with us, they're thinking about a ton of stuff while they're listening, right? And it's like, oh, that makes sense. This little piece, I can implement that. And, you know, I've always thought like, how can like my short little videos or these conversations that I have like really help people? Because in my mindset, I'm like, I'm just talking, right? You and I are just having a conversation, but it is, it is really cool how powerful these conversations can be for people because 
maybe not the entire episode, maybe not everything we said, but there's a little nugget here, a little nugget there that they can take and they can implement, right? And maybe next week they find a lot, another little nugget. And that that's one thing I really share with my clients. Like, hey, if you really want to make a long-term change, try to immerse yourself in this stuff too. Like read, watch videos, listen to people speak, because even though they're not giving you direct advice in terms of things to implement, you're going to pick up on little things here and there. And just listening to it, I think helps tremendously with the behavior change, with the uh, mindset shifts. And it just makes it easier to like, actually want to do these things or feel like you're doing the right things. I don't know. I don't know if you relate to that. Do you listen to podcasts much? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I hate walking around, not listening to something and <laughs> have to be like on the phone or listen to a podcast or music or something. I, I don't want to be alone with my own thoughts, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I, I listen to, um, like, uh, like some nutrition stuff. I listen to some like comedy podcasts and things. Um, listen to a couple of your podcasts recently before I came on here. Oh, <laughs> so, thank you, man. <laughs> uh, I listened to um, is it Dr. Allen? Yeah, you guys kind of touched on. Reason I mentioned that you guys kind of touched on a, co- a couple of the um, aspects of appetite control in that one. And then, uh, uh, funnily enough, I was listening to one earlier of, uh, of your most recent one with uh, I don't want to mispronounce his name. Is it Doron? Yeah, Doron. Yep. Um, and it's quite funny. It, you know, in the introduction when you're talking about you know when you were in school, how you weren't you know, academically blessed, let's say. Certainly. Um, and, uh, but when you found something you're interested in, then you mm-hmm. start to excel. And I, I really related, related to that. Like in school, I was so average, like, you know, Sweet. most Bs, maybe a couple Bs. If I got an A, it'll be in like P or something like that. <laughs> but, um, you know, and, and actually this, again, I was thinking about it while I was training and when I was listening to it, I was like, this also actually is quite a nice example of, you can relate this also if people are trying to want to try and, you know, empathize with those who struggle with their weight, people will happily acknowledge that there will be some people, for example, who academically might have to try harder. And like, even with things I'm interested in, again, like tying back to my masters, like I knew when I started it, I'm probably going to have to study harder than some of the other people, but because it's interest, interesting, you know, I can, I'm interested in it and, and I'm, I want to do well. I'm willing to do that. Um, but you know, these, these things, are um, it's not a level playing field. <laughs> and, yeah. and even, aspect but uh, no, it's just, that, like totally related to it yeah and that ties back to what you were mentioning before about the why right like you knew that going back into your master's after 10 years of not being in school is going to be tough but the why the reason you wanted to do it was a str- strong motivating force right That's uh, it, uh, early bid life crisis during lockdown <laughs> yeah I feel so. Yeah. A lot of people experience that, man. (laughs) Um, But you know, what I was referring to is listening to podcasts, like in my personal experience, because I don't listen to a ton of uh, fitness podcasts because it's repetitive. Right. And like, I talk about this stuff all day, but I do. So, you know, both you and I, I'm assuming with your coaching, your solo entrepreneur, do your own coaching clients on your own. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you and I have the academic background at what you've been in doing this for longer than I have, but like, I don't necessarily have the business background at all. Right. So for me, it's been like the parallel of one of my clients trying to improve their health is similar to like me trying to get better at business. Right. And so I just read books. I watch YouTube videos. I find people that I think are valuable on Instagram. And then I start listening to their podcasts and literally just going for walks, listening to podcasts. I've picked up on so many little things that have helped me. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's, definitely i mean it's obvious that that's why people benefit from these things because they listen to them but it is really powerful man um anyways luke i appreciate you tremendously for taking time to speak with me today dude would you mind please sharing where people can find you and if people want to inquire to work with you how can they do so sure yeah so all my socials are just luke hannah nutrition so h-a-n-n-a for hannah um mostly post on instagram and tiktok um you can contact me through there my links etc and one of the things I'm actually going to be releasing soon, if you don't mind me plugging something, is uh, so mentioned, um, you know, earlier, uh, Dr. Rids and I have been working on something for quite a long time now, which is essentially like an educational resource. It's, I don't want, to, don't want to call it a course, but it's kind of probably one of the best descriptions of it for those who want to learn everything they want. They need to know about weight loss and how to sustain weight loss. So for me, when I first started 
posting a lot on my social media because I had nothing else to do during lockdown. And I started seeing some growth. I kind of realized that I had two issues. First of all, there was a ceiling to how many people I could take on and help. Um, and, and, you know, it's not affordable for everybody. So all the way back then was when I had this idea to create this kind of resource for people. And we've been working on it for a long time, as I say, and that's almost ready. So if people are interested in that, um, and we cover everything from like the fundamentals um, and we break it all down. The videos are not super long, but it's because I know what people's attention spans are like. They're between two, three, up to 10 minutes, um, all professionally edited, hopefully looks all nice. Content is great. We cover everything from the fundamentals, energy balance, et cetera, to how to set goals, to extra considerations, diet breaks. We even have like a clinical module to cover things like PCOS, um, hyperthyroidism, um, menopause, exercise, nutrition for the menstrual cycle, all that sort of stuff. Um, so we, we cover like everything at the moment. We have about 37 different videos, I think. So, um, yeah, really excited to get that released. And so if people want to kind of sign up to the mailing list to make sure they don't miss it, then that would be cool. So <laughs> yeah, I will, I will put all of your links in the description of this episode, dude. It's me and, uh, do you know, Dr. Adrian Chavez? Yep. Yeah. So we're working on something similar where we're having like a, I guess this is a spoiler because I haven't really even talked about it much here, but like uh, a membership essentially, which is a combination of education and and coaching as well. And we're going to have a community because community is huge, like people relating to other people who are doing similar things. And so we're putting a lot of that educational content together too. And one of the things we talked about, we're like, uh, the videos cannot be longer than eight to 10 minutes. <laughs> people's attention span like it's just not there so we're like we're going to break this down into a ton of smaller sections rather than just like longer sections because yeah man everybody watches stuff on their phone now it's vertically vertical videos you know a minute here or there it's tough to even like even myself i've noticed that i used to watch like 20 30 minute youtube videos like it's nothing now if a video is longer than like eight minutes i don't click on it uh, TikTok ruined it, ruined all of our attention spans. <laughs> ah, must be. Uh, blame everything on TikTok. Anyways, Luke, I appreciate you tremendously, my friend. We'll stay in touch. And thank you for being on today. Thank you very much.